0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. So here's what Lacrosse has recently done: they've taken their 100 plus years of experience to create a new line of lace-up hunting boots called the Navigator Series. Now, the Navigator Series comes in two options: the Atlas for men and the Windrose for both men and women. Now, if you want to find out more about their high quality awesome boots, you need to go to lacrossefootwear.com.
2: My name is Clay Newcomb, and I'm the host of the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. I'll also be your host into the world of hunting, the icon of North American wilderness, the bear. We'll talk about tactics, gear, conservation, but we'll also bring you into some of the wildest country on the planet. Chasing bear. This is the third podcast in our Hound series, and this is a very unique podcast because we traveled all the way out to Posey, California to meet with my now friend, Ed Vance. Ed wrote a book called Trained by a Hound Dog, and it's an incredible story about his life as a lion and bear hunter in Southern California, Nevada, Utah, and Montana. I'd like to ask you for a favor, and that is to go and check out Ed's book. Look at it on his website, trainedbyhounddog.com, and if you enjoy hound stories or just epic hunting stories, you're going to enjoy this very well-written book by, by Ed, so check that out. I also want to draw your attention to a product and a company that I've used now for several years, and that is Northwoods Bear Products. If you're baiting bear, this is an incredible commercial scent line of products that I've personally used. And go to NorthwoodsBearProducts.net and check out all the stuff they've got. They've got all kind of sprays, all kind of scents, powders. But my favorite thing that Northwoods makes is their Gold rush. gold rush, Northwoods Gold Rush, is a concentrated liquid that comes in small bottles and it's a fryer grease additive. So you get used fryer grease or new fryer grease or just oil even, and you mix in this Gold Rush in there. And it turns this fryer grease into an extremely powerful scent attractant that sticks to bears' paws and they make bear trails kind of a butterscotchy scent it's an incredible product and i've seen it draw bears and heard tons of stories about the drawing power of this stuff so it's not just something i'm telling you about to sell it this is stuff that we've used and i i use it every time i bait and every time i start a bait so check out our friends at northwoodsbearproducts.net now on to posey california to Ed Vance's home The Greenhorn Mountains of Southern California look like a steep rolling savanna of grass and trees, many of which are some type of small oak. The mountains go up over 7,000 feet, many as steep as a cow's face.
1: From this property, I caught lions and bears all over everything, mm. all of all of the stuff that you can see.
2: Ed? And- Points to a bear hide hanging on the wall of his home.
1: That was one of the toughest bears that I'd ever got my dogs after. I mean I'd had others that were just as bad because there's a right here I'm gonna to explain to you yeah. and I'm gonna show you where it started, where it went to, and where it ended. Yeah. Come right here at this house. Ed
2: Vance is seventy-eight years old and he hunted these mountains for lions and bear in a 25-year stretch from the 1960s through the 1980s. Today, he can see much of his favorite hunting ground from the incredible view from his home.
1: But I wanna explain, I wanna show you, we're gonna walk over here. We'll have to walk around a little bit in order for you to uh, to take in all of what I'm gonna show you. Because
2: Ed is a gifted craftsman with wood, brick, and stone. His home, he built himself. It's a mix of a timber-framed, bungalow-style, western log cabin, ornate with saddles, worn cowboy hats, bear hides, and a mounted mountain lion, killed before the hunting ban in California. It's clear to see that Ed is a meticulous master of everything that he takes on. And at one period in his life, his entire focus was hunting lions and bears with hounds.
1: This particular bear that I got out after it was in, the, it mentioned in the book. Um, I started him in October, and it was just at the crack of dawn. And I had to, I couldn't find a bear by driving road, so I got, uh, I had two hunters with me, and uh, so we stopped. And I says, I'm going to walk up a canyon and see if I, if I can get a bear started up there. And I'm going to show you where this is at. You see this ridge right in front of us. You can see a lone tree standing yeah. up there all by itself. Yeah. From that tree, if you went straight down into the canyon, mm-hmm. so you can see the the ridge on the other side. Yeah. Straight down into the bottom, that's where they started this bear. Mm-hmm. I went up there, and, the, and they struck this bear. And this ridge, you can see where that lone tree's standing. You can see the ridge that it's on. And that ridge follows... keeps going and then he gets right up to a point they pulled him out of that canyon. he came out of that canyon crossed onto this side of that ridge and he skirted that ridge almost on the top all the way around and then where you can see that one high point he turned and he went to the opposite side of it Mm. now there was no roads to speak of and so i was following him on foot Mm. by the time i got to there i could hear those dogs It was a place called Portuguese Pass, and Portuguese Pass is the furthest ridge that you can see. Yeah, I see over there. As far as you can see. And he's just about to go over, and I thought if he goes over that... So there's a big valley in between that... It's called Bull Run Run Basin. The other side is called Bull Run Basin. I was north of that high point that we're talking about, which is from right where that point is at to where it started... Yeah, it's only like maybe three miles th- through the air. Hmm. But we weren't going through the air. We were going on ground. <laughs> you were and on it's foot. different. It's different. Yeah. So I got around to the other side of that and I heard those dogs headed towards Portuguese Pass. I had five dogs on it, as I recall. And they were really hammering that thing. And I was suspicious of what bear this was because I didn't know at the time, but I'd caught him two other times and let him go. And he was a non treeable bear. You're gonna bay him up, that was it. So as far as you can see, they just he just about got over that far ridge and they were then he was he was moving. And and these dogs were hitting it as hard as they could, and that is like extremely steep and rough. Yeah. And then I lost hearing of him. Now we're gonna to have to walk to another spot over well, here now, I'm gonna show you. Where this thing ended up at. <clears throat> in the meantime, I had two, I had these two guys that were, I was, I had them here on a bear hunt, and they were waiting for me at my pickup. I had a CB radio in the pickup. I'll walk up on this little knob here a little bit, and I can show you a little bit further. Get right up there in that opening. It's, it's kind an of nice incredible to, view. It is. It's kind of nice to be living in a spot where I can take and look at places like this and say, "Well, I know what had happened because yeah. I was there and it did happen." Yeah. Now we look straight ahead of us, and we can see a, a rounded mountain, and on this side has been burned. And I mentioned to you that it's a transition between the. Trees that had been burned, which were lower as the ones above, those dogs were on that side. You keep in mind they started over here. Yeah. They went around that point, and when they did that, I lost them. I had no mm. idea where they were.
2: Now, where were you? you I were was still back no, over here. I was
1: I was up on this. Wow. New step so over.
2: you're miles from where you started.
1: Oh yeah. Swoops down, Portuguese passes in there. I was up in that area someplace, and I could hear my dogs going down on that hillside, which is several miles from there, to, and I could hear them for several miles, and then they disappeared. So I came down through all of that, and it was late in the afternoon. Now, keep in mind, this started at about 6 in the morning. Late in the afternoon, which would be about, I'm going to say about 3 o'clock. I crossed this road right here, the road that I'm living on, Wow! but I was about four miles up. Mm.
2: When Ed got to the road, he cranked on the CB radio and heard the voice of a good friend that he didn't even know was in the
1: area. And he asked me, he says, uh, let me come and get you. And I says, w- do you, have you heard my dogs? And he said, yes. Mm. Your dogs, the last I heard him, he said, your dogs are down on White River, by the campground. Now, I'm going to show you where the White River Campground is at. <laughs> he wanted to come and pick me up, and I said, no, I, I, I want to just go across the country. I'm just going to keep, it's all downhill, and I can travel pretty fast going downhill. And uh, as long as I know that that's where they're at, and anything from Lewis. by this
2: time, you've already traveled 12, 14 miles oh, on foot. Yeah, yeah. Close to that through the well air. through air miles, and so Close you're going down in these steep valleys and ravines and up mountains.
1: Yes, because where the bear was started was at the five thousand foot elevation, and Portuguese Pass is seven thousand. Wow! So they almost
2: got. He so almost. Got, had to. You had to go. You had to lose elevation and gain and it many you, times. Yes,
1: yes, back and forth, back and forth. Wow! The road. If you look right down the bottom of the canyon, you see a dirt yeah. road down there. Yes. And when I got there, those dogs. White River was is about five miles from there to the north, and those dogs. And they were coming this to the south, about halfway between that ridge that you're looking at and the bottom of the canyon, which is about a 1, 1,200 foot drop in elevation below where I was at. And he started. He started skirting, going this way. He's going southwest. I followed that ridge and knowing that if he gets on this side of it I'm just going to lose those dogs he's going to go down in nothing but private land and I can't get into that stuff so about halfway between these two points which is going to be about a half three quarters of a mile he was getting close to crossing over and I got to where I could drop down and I came head on onto him and we walked right into each other when he saw me, he spun, and I had this. How far were the dogs behind him? They weren't behind him. They were all right alongside of him. Oh, they were behind him. They're they right on him. Oh, yeah. Oh wow. They yeah. Were, yeah. I got my shot at him, and I was almost at the bottom between those two ridges. In fact, there's some ranchers that said they was listening to the whole thing. Oh wow. And I shot and killed him right there. Wow. So how many miles it is? I don't know, but I do know this: I had 20 minutes to get the hide off of him, and it was going to be dark. <laughs> I don't have a clue how many miles that is. It has to be in straight line air miles, uh, 15 air miles, but we're talking about starting at 5,000 foot in elevation, going up and down until you get to 7,000 foot, and then going up and down until you drop down to about 2,500 foot elevation, and that's what it took to stop wow. that whole race. I think that's
2: an incredible... Feed for the dogs, but an incredible feat for a man.
0: Well,
1: I'll tell you something.
2: This bear is the only bear hide that Ed still has in his home. Ed wrote an incredible book that you're going to hear about inside of this podcast that tells many of the stories and tales of his 25 years of hunting California, Utah, Nevada, and Montana with a pack of hounds. Welcome to the Bear Hunting Magazine Podcast. We are, this is going to be a really neat episode. Uh, I'm in the home of uh, a man that's become a friend of mine today, really. (laughs) Yes. Um, But I I feel like I've, I feel like I know you after I read your book, but I'm in the home of, of Ed and Lynette Vance, and we're in Posey, California, which Ed, I would not have known where Posey, California was until I learned that you lived here, but it's an incredible and beautiful place just south of the Sierra Nevadas. Are we in the southern Sierra Nevadas? Is that we are, correct? We're on
1: the southern, southern tip of the Sierra Nevadas in a mountain range known as the Greenhorn Mountains. <clears throat> and uh, Sequoia National Forest and Sequoia National Monument is um, right on these Greenhorn Mountains. Um, a place that a lot of people really don't know about. Uh, in fact, there's people that um, we've met that live in the valley, the San Joaquin Valley. They've never even gone up into these mountains and they have no idea of what's up here. Um,
2: well, this morning we started off, and I mean, we were in Los Angeles. We yes. were in Los Angeles, California. Yeah. Seven, seven, uh, seven lane going one way, seven-lane traffic going the other, and yeah. we drove two-and-a-half hours, and, I mean, we're 20 miles from a gas station.
1: I mean, we're yeah, you're in... You're more than that. More than that. <laughs> I mean, we're in you're 40, wilderness, really. You're, you're 40 miles away from a gas station. The only thing that... Um, the closest little town is a town called Glenville. It's in Kern County. We're, we're in Tulare County, and uh, there's not much difference between the two counties, actually, but... Um, in Posey, all that we have in Posey is a post office.
2: For somebody who doesn't or did not know much about California, California is an incredible state for wildlife, and 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 really has an incredibly rich history in hunting. and And that's why I'm here. Is uh, so Ed wrote a book called "Trained by a Hound Dog." The book was released back in November, and the book is is basically. A collection of stories about ed's life as a as a houndsman hunting mountain lions and bears in these mountains right here where we're at and uh and so that's what i want to talk to you about today is i want to i want people to get a feel for for your history in hound hunting and and uh and in doing that we're going to talk about the book and and we just did a I I didn't know Ed, wouldn't have known Ed, but several months ago it was probably Lynette that contacted me just through Bear Honey Magazine and said, I'd like to send you a book that my husband wrote and I said, Well sure. And I get a lot of books, Ed. I really do. A lot of people a lot of people write books and, and I read a lot of books. And uh when I read this book it I could tell that the the voice of this writer was someone special. I really did. And, uh, and I, as I, as I read the book, I thought, man, I'd like to, I'd like to meet that guy. And, uh, and, and it just so happened that our family was coming to California. And so I looked up where Posey, California was, cause that's on your trained by hound dog website. And it was just a couple hours out of where we were. And so you graciously said, yeah, come on to the house, fed us lunch. And here we are. I've got my whole family here. <laughs> and uh and we're here with you and 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 so anyway, thank you for hosting. Oh, you're us. welcome.
1: We're sure happy to have you here. Yeah. Um <clears throat> I hope that this will turn into a um a, a long term friendship. In fact I I'm sure it will. You know, yeah. I wanted to say something about these mountains here. Um <clears throat> during the during the, the, the years of the bounty for mountain lions and a lot of people have no idea of this, there was, a, there was a California state lion hunter that lived here, and his, his name was Howard Bilton. And I wish that I'd have known Howard. Um, he died just about the same time that I started hunting these mountains. But had he been alive when I was doing this, that guy would have had a hard time getting rid of me, I'm sure of that. <clears throat> but I, I was really surprised when I moved here and talked to guys that had hound dogs that the, there was hardly anybody other than the longtime residences that even knew that this guy even existed here. But he did. And, and like I say, he was a full-time lion hunter for the state of California. And uh, I think he was, I, I checked his record, and in his final years of, of, uh, of as a, a state lion hunter, he was actually killing about 15 lions a year, which, you know, that's quite a few, actually. And some places, you know, that the, where you have snow all the time to catch your lions, uh, 15 lions might not sound like a whole lot to some of those people. But here it was predominantly bare ground trailing. And uh, so you couldn't just go and uh, roam around these hills looking for a lion track in the snow because it just wasn't, it wasn't there, and uh, so the dogs that they used had to be pretty good quality dogs. The hunters had to be totally dedicated, and uh, that's what I found in this part of the country. I, I've seen um, some places it was pretty easy to catch lions, as compared to others. Uh, when I was in Montana, uh, it was definitely one of the easiest places because it's. It's like it snowed almost every day. And every time that you'd find a lion track, is just about counting on it wasn't very old, you know. But uh, that and then the bear population in, in this part of the country is um, really good. It's far better than people would have thought it was. Um, <clears throat> the entire Sierra Mountain Range uh, has been, and, and the Coast Range both, have been noted forever for having the, a, a lot of a lot of bears um, and a lot of large bears to go with it, and the reasons for that was basically because the winters were short, growing seasons were long, and there was either oak trees or oak brush that's covering all these hills, and uh, those happened to produce acorns, and acorns bears love them, and they get fat on them. Yeah. So. So, it's, it was a an area that was um, uh, very unique, but at the same time, a lot of people in this part of the country, they say that, uh, they, they use a, a term that um, Posey, California was Tulare uh, County's best kept secret because nobody seemed to know where it was at. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, even at the county seat, we've had to talk to people out of the building department and Some of them didn't even know where we were, <laughs> and we're in their county. But, wow. Anyways, um, no, it's it's, it's a, a beautiful place. Um, four seasons, winter's the shortest, summer's the longest, and yeah. a lot of beautiful scenery to go with it. Yeah.
2: Ed, give us a give us a kind of a run through of your. Well, just let me let me just start off with this. When did you start hunting with hounds, and how did you get into it, and why? Because you didn't grow up in a family that no. had hounds. I mean, no. you that I, that was when I first started reading the book that caught my attention. Because a lot of time, most of the time, somebody that's in hounds is introduced to it, or there's some pretty close connection to them that was able to get them in. But it, it's almost like you started running hounds just
1: just well, of was, your own volition. Yeah, you know, I would always, as a kid, uh, I grew up in a suburb for the town by the name of Glendale. In California and in those days of course the population wasn't what it was today and um, I kind of liked the act like I was hunting and because of it right from our house you just go off in the hills they're just covered with brush and uh, just kind of make-believe you know but at, over time I drifted away from that and then I found myself working at an assembly plant for Chevrolet in Van Nuys California and directly across the line from me was a, a guy by the name Sherwood Barrett, and uh, he was from Georgia. And and Sherwood he he was a Mormon, and he told me he says that uh, he left Georgia, and he's on his way to Salt Lake City, and because uh, he wanted to live there, but he had to get go someplace and earn some money in the process, and so he was I was putting gas lines gasoline lines on these cars as they passed uh, 50-something an hour. And uh, so we'd get a few moments every now and then to visit. And he started telling me about chasing these hound dogs in the Okefenokee Swamp in Georgia. <laughs> hmm. And uh, it really caught my interest. I mean, it really did. And the next, What were they hunting down there? They were hunting, rag- hunting coons. Hunting coons. Yeah. Yep. And uh, <clears throat> so anyways... He'd tell me these stories about this, what he was doing, and it just really got my interest. And uh, so I asked him. I said, uh, Sherwood, where would you, where do you go to buy these dogs?" And he told me, he "says uh, you go to like outdoor life. They got these guys advertising them. I didn't know at the time that most of those guys were selling dogs that nobody wanted. You know, <laughs> and uh, people like myself would buy them because I didn't know what I was buying in the first place." So anyways, I started with that. And, um,
2: and What was your intention? Was your intention to run lion or bear?
1: <coughs> I just wanted, I like dogs. And I like the idea of hunting. And as, uh, hunting with dogs sounded good.
2: So you would have been in your early 20s probably at this time? I was. Okay. I so was. you just, you I just, was just like, wanted some hunting dogs. I was
1: like 20 years old. Yeah. And uh, nobody in my family had ever even heard of it. And uh, so I ordered a dog from him. And I got a red bone hound, and uh, he's a nice-looking dog, actually. Called him Buck. Seemed to know his name. <clears throat> so I got this dog and uh, didn't know where to go hunting. So I, I took <laughs> off, and I went up in, in, the, in the mountains up by Ventura, which is just covered with brush. So I actually have a terrible place to try and hunt dogs, and I never caught anything with him. And then I started meeting different guys, that had hound dogs, and they weren't doing any good either. And uh, so I fooled around with those different fellas, and and the the dogs that uh, they had, and a couple dogs that I had. And eventually, I learned that uh, what these dogs were chasing was not anything they could climb a tree at all. But the guys I was hunting with, hmm. they were just fooling themselves about it. You know what they're really what they were after but they were uh
2: probably chasing deer or something they were chasing deer
1: is what they were chasing you know so time went by and i next thing i knew i was introduced to a guy out of utah by the name of willis butoff which was a a very well-known government hunter and um had caught hundreds of lions uh, unbelievable numbers of lions i mean it had really caught them too as well <clears throat> and um so I got with him and hunted with him a few times and uh, bought a few dogs from him and uh from there I started learning about the difference between hunting dogs and taking dogs hunting and catching stuff <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. uh so then from there I uh, I ended up losing a couple of these dogs to to 1080 poison, which was a terrible, terrible situation, and that was in Utah. And then I ended up meeting a guy that lived. It was a he worked for a big farm out of Wasco, California, and he said that, that people told me that he had a hound that he might sell because of his age. And uh, I got in touch with him. The guy's name's J.D. Reynolds, and he had this red tick hound that uh, he said he would sell, and uh, I bought him. And I couldn't believe what I had bought. Mm. I went from from not catching anything to speak of to every time I put that dog's foot on the ground, he caught something. Mm. And he didn't run deer. He didn't run coyotes. And he caught bobcats and raccoons and foxes Every time he hit the ground, practically. Hmm. And from there, I started learning the difference between good dogs, mediocre dogs, and dogs that just aren't any good. And uh, so on the book that I <clears throat> titled titled Trained by a Hound Dog, that title was really thinking about this dog, this red take hound, which we called Bo. And uh, like I say, he was six years old when I got him. I was working as a uh, carpenter framing houses in Thousand Oaks, California, where uh, framing houses there as a carpenter was more like an athletic contest than it was anything else because it was all piecework and you you didn't get paid much uh, for for what you did. And if you're going to have any money at all, you're going to work like you're fighting fire from the moment you got there until it was time to go home, Mm. which I did. And I'd take and load Bo up on Friday nights and I'd head off from uh, Ventura, California to the Greenhorn Mountains, which is where we're at right now, which is where Bo was uh, actually trained. He came from Arkansas. He was a a red tick hound um, out of the Elbert Vaughn stock of English hounds, which eventually became the Elbert Vaughn blue ticks. In those days, he was still dealing with registered English dogs, and uh, which is the same thing basically, mm. just different colors. And uh, I think that first year, I'd I'd get off work and I'd drive all the way up here, which was three and a half to four hours each way after working all all week. And I think that first year, I had um, Bowen and I bought a a plot hound. I called him Pat. And he was like two years old when I got him. Bo wouldn't run a lion at all. He he wouldn't. I'd find a lion track that was fresh, and he wouldn't pay any attention. But um, Pat had been on some lions. I got Pat from Willis Butoff in Utah, and he'd been on these lions, so he he was uh, eager, more eager to try and trail him than Bo was. Bo didn't care. And uh, I think I caught on. Uh, Friday night hunting, Friday nights and Saturday, right out a hundred animals that first year, and that was driving four hours each way to go after, putting in five days of mm. slave labor type work, you know, which it was very impressive to me, mm. and uh, it was basically bobcats and foxes. Was
2: hmm. so they uh, tree these foxes and these little they, oak trees.
1: They do tree here. It's called a gray uh, cross fox, and. Uh, <clears throat> They're a lot harder to tree than the bobcats are, and um, but then too in the in the summer months you had to have something that was really good to to be able to even trail any of it because of the the um, trailing conditions got really poor, very dry conditions, very difficult for most towns to be able to to catch much of anything in the summer months, and uh, but it didn't seem to make any difference that dog would do it, and um, so then, anyway that's the 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 title of trained by a hound dog was that I was taught by a hound dog named Bo. He and
2: taught you what a what a good dog was
1: supposed he, to do. He, he what not only what it was supposed to be, but I was able to use him to take younger dogs and train them. Yeah. And uh, and I and, and the the experience that I'd had prior to this, I did learn that uh, one of the things that a a hound hunter doesn't want to do with his dogs is get him in bad company, and uh, up until I'd gotten um, introduced to Willis Butov, most of the hunting that I did with anybody was is all dogs in bad company, and uh, uh, but Bo was he was straight, and he was a clean dog, and from there I started um, this, having other dogs.
2: And you started really searching across the country I did for for hounds I did now you would have been now so you're still in your early 20s and that's when you set out to try to get a sustainable pack of hounds
1: yeah I was about 25 years old I guess when I got Bo maybe 26 at the most what
2: year would that have been in the 60s
1: yeah uh, I think I got Bo in 63 or 64 he was born in 1958 he was born in Paragould, Arkansas, and uh, which is where Albert lived. But Albert didn't have him. But Albert owned the father to him. And now you went
2: and spent some time down there.
1: I did, because uh, J.D. Reynolds, this guy in Wasco that I got got the dog from. He was from Paragould, and he grew up with Albert Vaughn. And <clears throat> J.D. told me that uh, if I was interested in that line of dogs it'd probably be a good idea for me to take off and go back and visit with Elbert, mm-hmm. which I did. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh I stayed with Elbert for, I think it was about three months. And uh Elbert wanted to hire me. He Elbert worked in a shoe factory. And so that was pretty full time for him. And he didn't have the, the finances or the time to be able to take in all these wild coon hunts and stuff like that. But he... He figured that he could make enough money to pay me something and give me room and board, <laughs> and I'd stay there and I'd take his dogs to these to these coon hunts. And um, but I I wasn't I did I didn't want to do it. I just wasn't cut out for that. Uh, and I love these mountains here. And of course, Paragould, Arkansas, just out in the flatlands. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I did learn this. <clears throat> he had awfully good dogs. And he really did. I, there's no doubt about that. And while I was there, I was able to pick up a pup from him, which was not easy to do um, at the time. And, and I called him Sailor. And Sailor was, was out of um, a female that he called Lula II. And I did learn at that time from Albert that of his blue ticks, which he had a number of different families of them, that those that have that came out of the the stock of dogs that was uh, sired by a dog called um, Florida Curly, which was owned by a guy named Jake Size in Coffeyville, Mississippi. Um, he got a dog named Curly, and out of that, and from there he got a female called Lula. And and I learned that anything that came out of Lula. Was going to be pretty hard to beat, Hmm. especially if it came to speed. And I took, um, of course, Sailor. He was out a little the second. Albert also told me that um, in breeding, his experience, which he'd had a lot of it, in breeding, in families of dogs, he said to duplicate. If you're trying to duplicate a dog. He said, "The chances are you'll see the duplication in the grandparents before you'll see it in the parents." Meaning, so the you're breed,
2: seeing it see it two generations down.
1: Yes, yes, and and I could see that um, sometimes with the inbreeding with these dogs, that the grandchildren would be more likely to be like the grandparents hmm. than the children would be by the parent itself. And, uh, of course, now Lula II happened to be, or excuse me, Lula it was Sailor's grandmother. And as time went by, Sailor kept getting better and better and better. And finally, he passed up Bo. Of course, mm. Bo had a few years on him. He was getting a little old. But right. he still, Sailor was getting faster and faster and faster. And he died at the age of seven and a half Um, through heartworm treatment Mm. is what took him out. In this part of the world, it seemed like with the guys that had dogs that could catch bobcats regularly uh, or foxes, it usually would take a half an hour to get them to go up a tree anyways under good trailing conditions. When Sailor got to where he was about five years old, I, I was done with the bobcat hunting, because I was I was full time guiding then, and it was just lions and bears, and I didn't have a, a need or an interest for chasing bobcats, but I would still have to hunt the dogs loose to um, to hunt the, find lions because or bears, because we didn't have snow conditions to find tracks that way, yeah. and and um, so
2: they'd get on a bobcat every now they'd and then. They get now.
1: on a bobcat. Well, I didn't want dogs out there wearing themselves out chasing a bobcat when I'm out there trying to find a lion um and <clears throat> come to find out these 30 minute 45 minute bobcat chases started getting shorter and shorter and shorter and the last two years of that dog's life um he would catch 35 to 40 bobcats a year <clears throat> i don't remember i didn't keep track to the foxes but um if any bobcat could stay on the ground three minutes, he was on the ground a long time after he jumped it, mm. and most of them <clears throat> would be within a minute to a minute and a half. And that, you know, and I'm not bragging; I'm just stating facts. That is how fast that dog. And g- that
2: was Sailor that you got directly from yes. Albert Vaughn.
1: Yes. Yeah. And then I ended up with a um, a, a granddaughter of Sailors who was um, killed at a very young age um accidental death and um this was in montana and it appeared as though that she had that speed as well that um, most dogs wouldn't have i just i couldn't i i just couldn't find anybody that or hunted with anybody that had dogs that could run that fast It just it was just everything was a one dog race once it was jumped Mm. but anyways from there um I stayed in California until uh, we got run out of here. Um, let,
2: let let me can I back up a little bit? Yeah. So what year? So you got interested in hounds. You got a good hound. Started treeing some bobcats and foxes. And you were by this time your mid twenties. And then when did you start outfitting for Bearing Line? Because that's what the that's what the book is primarily about. It's talking about your years as an outfitter
1: yes so, i started okay i started advertising well i'd hurt my back really bad in framing houses and i i just couldn't um i couldn't keep doing it so i left ventura and i moved to this area where we're at here that was in um, 1966 when i moved here i've been keep in mind i've been hunting it for about three four years you've been driving that. four or yeah, five tra- hours traveling back and forth yeah but i moved here full time started running some ads in the magazine, uh, like Outdoor Life magazine. And uh, I was I was so poor, I was poor as a church mouse as the sayings go, you know. And uh, living in the back of my truck at the same time. <laughs> but I, anyways, I uh, rented an old shack, moved into that, started advertising. And uh, I started getting some customers. <clears throat> and... Um,
2: you just had a little bitty ad in Outdoor Life that That's said, right. "said barren mountain line with yep. hounds in California."
1: Yep, fifty dollars a month.
2: Fifty dollars a month
1: for a, a one column inch ad. You know? Wow! <laughs> Which was just it, it was it was just about broke me to have to pay that advertisement. <laughs> you know, but I yeah. you either paid it. You didn't get any any hunters, and it started to grow from there. You know, and then I ended up having a. a I guess people started knowing a little bit about me being here. And uh, I knew this guy lived up at Sugarloaf Village. And he said that he knew a guy that worked for the L.A. Times. And he talked to him about what I was doing. And they wanted to know if they could uh, come up here and uh, take him lying. under they'd run an article in the Los Angeles Times. Hmm. So... You know, I said, "Well, yeah, okay, let's do it." And um,
2: this was obviously a time when it was a little more favorable to hunt lions in California. It was what? It was a little more favorable back yeah. then to hunt lions yes, in it California.
1: Was. The the bounty had the bounty had been taken off. That was in 1963, and I I wasn't against them taking that bounty off. I didn't think they needed to to do anything like that. Um, and the lion population, according to bounties, numbers of bounties annually it dropped significantly um you know because it's like there were years that they bountied 400 lions in a year and now they were down to like 100 lines a year that's for the entire state so they yeah. really didn't need to be paying people to do this these guys are going to do it anyways they're just doing it for fun so anyways these guys came up a guy named Dewey Lindsay and with him was this photographer that works for the he's a freelance photographer And he worked for uh, basically worked for uh, National Geographic, and here I am, twenty-five years old, with about three three hound dogs, and uh, I got these high-powered professionals from Los Angeles come up here and want want me to catch a lion. They said I only got three days to do it in. Well, (laughs) the pressure was really on because trying to trying to you know there's one thing to catch a lion. Well, you're just out there hunting, and you run into them, and you catch them as a, as they become available. But if you're going to do this as as a profession, and you got people coming in, and uh, you're gonna, you're on a no catch, no pay, which I was at those days. No catch, no pay. No catch, no pay. You, if you didn't catch it, you didn't get paid anything. Was that common back then, or is yes. that just something
2: that you wanted to do? No, no,
1: that was common. That was the way it was everywhere. Um, all of them through the mountain states. Everybody, no catch, no pay. You had to chauffeur these people around and pay for their food, and sometimes drive a couple hundred miles each way to an airport to pick them up and take them back. And uh, if you didn't catch them line, you didn't get paid anything. <laughs> so <laughs> that's press, tough business. The pressure was on, you know, and uh,
2: well, made for some good outfitters, didn't it? It
1: it separated them. It truly did. Yeah, and. Uh, I caught him a lion on the, on the third day.
2: Third day. and uh, You're just dry ground lion hunting, so you're just roaming around, free casting the dogs.
1: No. Now, were you on your it, horse at that no, time? No, I, I didn't. No, I wasn't using horse. What, I, what I'd have to do is I just had to go places where I knew that lions would frequent. And, and it's, you know, they're, they're kind of a, a strange animal in that um, you find lions that would cert- use certain areas. And areas close by, they wouldn't even go and bother with, you know, over there. Wow. And um, so I would go to these places where I knew that I had either caught lions already or I'd seen lions. I was really looking for some place where I could find a lion track, knowing that I hadn't already caught the thing. And uh, so anyways, we ended up catching the lion, and they, they ran this story in the uh what's we called west magazine to the los angeles Times, it's a weekend magazine through that ad it it, it generated quite a bit of uh, business for me and uh next thing i knew i was i was so so doggone poor i was hurting for money so bad that i'd coast home i'd find when i'd be driving home i'd turn the motor off so i didn't burn the gas going downhill but next thing i knew that i i could leave the motor running at least to get home Man,
2: you were catching so many lines you could leave the motor running when (laughs) you were riding down the road yeah that's right
1: (laughs) going down the hill you made it yeah (laughs) yeah i was really really getting rich you know i'd like to say this too that um that was uh, during the years that i did all this um uh, i wouldn't trade the memories of that for anything at all i mean it was just uh something that was just really important to me, and I I, I I, cherish those memories. But I'll tell you what, I was so poor, it took every penny that I made to feed those dogs, buy new ones if I needed to buy a dog, uh, pay for gas. Trucks didn't last very long in those days. Uh, 70,000 miles on a truck that I was driving, it was you buy one brand new and then 70,000 miles later it was pretty rough shape so so anyways from from there um i stayed in in california um doing the lion and the bear and i took the i started hunting bears in northern california i'd run into a guy and his two boys one day on a dead end road down here this is in kern county i just caught a lion and there was a young guy with me, his name's Roy Stevenson. He's still a good friend, and uh, he retired out of Kern County Fire Department. And uh, he was with me. He was uh, it was on his 16th birthday. He told me, he says he wanted to go go hunting and see if uh, maybe we could catch a lion together. And it was uh, 1966. It was uh, December 27th, I think. And we caught this lion, but we got a flat tire in the process of trying to stay with the dogs. And uh, we were just about ready to leave. And we were right at the end of a dead-end road anyways. At the end of the road, couldn't be 500 feet away from us. And um, I looked down the road, and there these two boys standing there with four hound dogs. And I asked Roy Stevenson, I said, do you know know those kids? He says, I've never seen them in my life. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, there was a friendship that is still going on today. The two boys was Bobby Bridges and Gary Bridges. They lived in, uh, by Redding and their father, Jim Bridges, who is now passed on. We hit it off really well. And uh, so the next thing I knew, I was up there taking bear hunts in Shasta County and Jim Bridges was giving me a hand at it. And I ended up buying three of those dogs that were standing at the end of the road that day from Jim. And... Uh, all of them wonderful dogs, outstanding dogs, um, to say the least. I say to say they were good dogs wasn't really much of a compliment. Um, mm-hmm. They were exceptionally good dogs. And uh, so, like I say, Jim, of course, he's he passed on, unfortunately. They were, they were all timber fallers. Mm-hmm. Jim was one of the, actually one of the finest men that I think I've ever known in my life. You could believe anything he said. And uh, you can't find many of them that you can do that with. And if he said a dog was was a good dog, it was a good dog. And it was a good dog by his standards. And his standards were quite a bit above what a lot of guys' standards for good dogs were. Um, but it was just a, a wonderful friendship that developed. And the, and the bears, um, at that time, in these Greenhorn Mountains, which is where we're at... Uh, the bear population was was very poor in this area. They'd had a, <clears throat> from what I understand, they'd had had a drought, a severe drought, in the late 1950s. And they said that the bears went clear to the San Joaquin Valley hmm. in those years. And in those years, they were using a poison called 1080 to kill ground squirrels and wow. everything else. <laughs> And 1080 is a kind of a poison that if a ground squirrel eats it and something comes along and eats the ground squirrel, it's going to kill that thing too. Mm. And I kind of think that between the drought and the widespread poisoning of ground squirrels in these mountains, that it just about wiped the bear population out for a long long ways away. And it wasn't until... About nineteen sixty-eight, which would be about ten years after that drought, that we started finding bears showing up. That was super good. So,
2: how long did you just to give an overview? So, you started you started guiding in what year and ended in what year?
1: Okay, I started guiding in nineteen sixty-six, late nineteen seventies. I quit guiding. Okay. I, I didn't quit hunting. I quit guiding. Yeah. And uh, I was in Montana when I quit,
2: so you guided for about fifteen years or so close to it yeah yeah close to it I know in your book you talk about uh, you talk about uh, and this is one thing that intrigued me was you hunted on horseback a lot um, yep. was that one of your favorite ways to hunt Ed was hunting on horseback with the dogs free ranging out
1: i I did enjoy that uh, it was you know the easiest way to hunt dogs is to turn the dogs loose and let them run down the road in front of a pickup and follow them in a truck. Yeah. Which is very common then and common today. But in lion hunting, sometimes uh, with what I was doing, see, I, w- I couldn't catch lions at just my leisure. It didn't make any difference. If I was out there and caught a lion and I didn't have any, anyone with me, It didn't do me any good. Yeah, I didn't get paid anything, and I was full time doing this. So I needed a paying customer to be with me, and a paying customer had to be there when I caught it. Yeah, I mean I could catch the I could catch the lion the day after the guy left, and it didn't do me any good because <laughs> he left and he took his money with him when he when he left. Yeah. You know, so during those years, I had to go wherever the lions were at, and and. It's like most of the hunts were like one week hunts, and during that week period of time, I had to come up with a lion. And if I didn't come up with a lion, I just got to, I just got to pay the bill all by myself, you know. And uh,
2: did that happen very often, or did you catch most most people's lines? I,
1: you know, I was running a, a, I thought a pretty high percentage, and I'm talking, I'm, you know, I've, I hear guys give their their percentages, and sometimes you. You have to question whether there's any truth to that, um, because of weather conditions and things that can happen to you while you're hunting. But on the both the, lion, the both line and bear hunts, I was hitting pretty close to ninety percent, mm. um, which meant you if you had if you had a guy on a lion hunt, and you're gonna he's gonna give you five days or like in this case with the newspaper they gave three. Um. you didn't get much time to do that. So you better know where there's one at. And so to do that, I had to stay active, <clears throat> actively looking, even if I had nobody with me. Well, here comes the horse now. Okay, I drive roads. I look for tracks alongside the roads. I walk some trails, but you can only walk so far. Um, then there's other areas that you know that are pretty decent for having lions in them. Um, but it didn't do you any good to go way back in the back country. If you're going to take what we used to call them dudes, take them in there to go catch a lion because you had to get them in there too, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so I would take and I'd use the horse to scout, to constantly look, see if I could find a line. If I caught him, I'd make sure I let him go. Um, but try and keep track of it so that you could hopefully find it again, mm-hmm. which wasn't all that often. i seemed like I guess lions, let them go, and I never even see their tracks again. Yeah, <laughs> they're just gone. You know. Yeah. I don't know what, what so happened. So you,
2: so you weren't. I guess it's obvious you couldn't use the horse when you had clients with you. So you were using that horse to be mobile to find lions for when people came in.
1: I, basically, yes, but I did use them on occasion. Um, if, as an example, um, there's a place that I use the horse. Every time I went there, and that was up out of a place called Johnsondale. There's a trail there called the Rincon Trail. It was very good for having lions in it. But the Forest Service would lock the road getting to it, which meant that you had a two and a half miles behind a locked gate before you could get to the Rincon Trail. And it was all uphill getting to it, Mm. you know. So so you had to use horses to do that, and I did— I did use horses to take guys in there, and uh, it was almost always you could find you could find something going on in there, lines hanging out in some place in that, you know. Um, but anyways, um, was, how many did I catch? As compared to driving roads, I caught more driving roads. Hmm. Um, just. Because you can travel fast,
2: just a, it's an efficient way to hunt.
1: It is. You can travel much faster. And you're
2: looking for an actual track, a yes. dirt track in the road. That's right. Yeah, um,
1: dusty roads. You try and find these roads of where the roads are just powder in them. You know, and it never. Did like, you
2: get where you were really good at seeing a track? I mean, yes. I know when I've hunted with these guys out in Tennessee, that uh, that are they're looking for tracks crossing gravel roads and places where bears skid down banks you know and leaves and they can see things a lot of people wouldn't see they're they're really trained to to see like that
1: yes yeah it's like i used to tell people i say you know i could walk right through a herd of deer not even see any of them because i can't i I see their track but i can't look up Mm. because i'm just looking down so much that I just automatically look at the ground yeah. to see what's in the. And, you do you know, still what,
2: find yourself doing that today when you're out? I do. Really, you're. I you're do. scouring this, the ground
1: right here on our property. Yeah, I do. I'm just looking at the ground, see what the, what kind of tracks we got. Any tricks
2: for finding lion tracks with your eyes? I mean, anything you look for? Did they cross? In, I'm sure they crossed in certain places, or is it just totally arbitrary where they
1: cross? You know what, lions. Um, they um, they seem to use trails that are obvious to you. You you get to the point to where you could you could you find a lion track you're walking up a canyon. You find a lion track and it's going a certain direction. You look off in the in the distance and you can just about say if this line has gone that far, whatever that is, a mile or whatever it is the chances are he went right through there Mm. and, and you almost, you can predict where he was. Yes. You almost always right. Just, just by trailing so many of them, you know, Mm. and
2: would you, so you, you outfitted for lion and bear. What was your favorite? What was your favorite to chase with your hounds? I love chasing bears. Did you more than lions?
1: Oh, that's hard to say. Um, I tell you what, the, what I liked about about the lion hunt. I really did enjoy catching a lion where the dogs would start with a track that was almost nothing. Where they have they'd, they'd, and you had to have dogs that had good cold noses. To where they'd, um, you'd find a lion track in the dirt, and you point at it, and they'd stick their nose down there. They couldn't smell it, but they'd. They knew you were pointing something out, and they'd start looking, and they'd find a twig that had touched that animal's side, and they could smell it on that twig, mm. and they'd bark, and you'd look at the ground where they're at, and there's that lion's track, mm. and you start from that, and maybe 10 miles later, you're looking at the lion. Wow. That, to me, made it all worthwhile. That was that was hunting dogs that's not that wasn't hunting lions that was taking dogs and seeing them at their very finest, yeah and I just loved that um I know there's lots of lions that I'd caught <clears throat> people that I'd taken in the past after writing this book they'd asked me about it, and I forgot all about it because they were they were what we call a pop up you know yeah. you 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 cut the track and it was fresh, yeah. and the lion wasn't very far away when you.
2: So that was the easy one.
1: Those are easy. They're just pop-ups. You know, you forget about them. But those ones that where you get out after those things, then you go all day long just working. Sometimes in the summertime where the dog's just, just taking both of you, you got to find the track You help the dog, and the dog can take the track a little ways where you couldn't find it. And next thing you know, they turn that thing into a, a movable track and, like, say. That was satisfying. Miles later, you're looking at it. There now, he is in a tree.
2: One thing that you did, and this I noticed inside the book, was you did some incredible athletic feats, in my mind, following these dogs. I mean, we, we talked earlier at the beginning of the podcast about a hunt where you probably went 25 miles by foot in a single day in these mountains. I mean, were you a exceptional I mean, what? What? Were you a really great athlete, Ed?
1: No. As a matter of fact, as as an infant, I had tuberculosis, Mm. and uh, they figured that I would um, never be able to do anything athleticized. But then I'd also had learned that your lungs can repair, Mm. and apparently mine did. Yeah. And you know. I would go places that, following a hound dog, I wouldn't even think of going there. But it was because the dogs and I were doing this together. This wasn't a situation where, let me put it like this. For the numbers of lions that I caught, I, left a lot, I let a lot of them go. Just let them go. Same with bears. I let hundreds of bears go. I mean hundreds. I don't mean 100. I don't mean 200. I mean maybe like 300. Treed bears. Just let them go.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, one day we caught uh, five bears one day in Montana, which is against the law to chase a bear in Montana, but we did it anyways, and we caught five bears, <laughs> separate bears, not traveling together, no cubs, let every single one of them go. Um, mm-hmm. It was all about dog hunting, but in order for me to do this with these dogs, I had to take people along that would pay me to do it, and to do that, they had to shoot it. So, so we did that. But, anyways, I've, I've lost my train of thought. What was your question? <laughs> Just
2: uh, it being an athletic feat oh, to do no. what you did, and you had tuberculosis as a kid.
1: I did. Now, <clears throat> there's a lot of times, you know, I I, I I keep telling myself, no pain, no gain. You know. And um, but if i if I could hear those dogs, I'm going to them. And there was one time in my entire career that my dogs treat a bear, and I didn't go to him. I started to go to them, but I had two guys with me. This is up in Shasta County, and they treat a bear in this place called Hell Soul. That's what the name of that canyon. Hmm. And that canyon is so steep. That you had to hang on to stuff as you're going downhill, otherwise you're going to just start sliding and you'll go all the way to the bottom. Mm-hmm. And from where the um, where we started the bear, they dropped off in a canyon that's about 1,500 feet in elevation to the bottom of straight down, and treated about a thousand feet up the other side, and we started going down to these dogs. And I had two guys with me. One of them was really heavy set. And I, I knew that he was never going to get there. And I, I really wasn't too happy about going there anyways myself. But the dogs were just blowing the top out of this tree. And across the canyon from where we were standing to where those dogs were actually treeing, we could not have been a thousand feet through the air apart from each other. But at the same time, we were about... A thousand feet in elevation down, and another thousand feet in elevation back Ooh, up.
2: That's a tough one.
1: And uh, so I asked these guys. I said, uh, "What's going to happen if we get to the bottom? You're going to be able to get back to the <laughs> up to the top, because if you can't, there's no sense going down there." And they told me. They said, "We'll never make it." Hmm. So uh, I started yelling. And I fired my rifle a couple of times, and it's really surprised me. I, I don't remember how many dogs I had. it, probably, I usually, I usually had about four. I, I like to during the bear season. I like to have no less than three, and usually about four. I'd rotate the so dogs. You could
2: catch dogs with. You could catch bears with three, four, five
1: hounds. Yes. Yeah. Um. I'll tell you a little about my philosophy on that. And which was the same as a few other guys, um, but anyways, uh, the dogs came to me, and I was totally shocked that mm. they quit and came across that canyon. But
0: mm.
1: as we got out of there, you know, when it comes to numbers of dogs, Willis Butoff, he is a lion. He was a guy. Uh, excuse me, wasn't a guy. He was a government hunter, but he also guided people as well. And he's he he trapped for coyotes, he uses dogs for lions and bears. Stock killing lions and bears. And he told me early on, he said if you have three or four dogs that can't catch a bear, you don't need more. You need new ones. <laughs> yeah. And I found that to mm. be true. If mm. you got four dogs and they can't catch bears. You better start looking for new dogs or, or help for some of them. You might have a, you know, now when I say three or four dogs, yes, three or four. If you've got three or four dogs and they can't, you need new ones. I'm talking about three or four dogs where all three or four of them are bear dogs. Yeah. Not where you've got one dog. There's a lot of guys got that. They have one dog that's good. And then the, the rest of them is just a bunch of dogs that are just following, you know. Yeah. And they catch the easy ones. But whenever they get after a bad one, pretty soon they get start strung out. And um, you hear one dog, he falling behind. Another one's falling behind. And then after a little while, you hear this one dog all by himself. Yeah. And
2: he was and the one doing all the work he's to doing begin with. The,
1: yes, he is. He's the guy doing all the work. Yeah. Well, that's where you need to keep him. And start looking for replacements yeah. for the other ones, you yeah. know. But you no, I, I good bear dogs you can do the job, you know. Um and but they don't all make good bear dogs. You know, when you're talking about these guys like you said in Tennessee <clears throat> on these gravel roads. Um, there's a there is a method that is very popular today. Sailor was the very first dog that I had that would do this. And that strike a bear out of the back of a truck.
2: Right, rigging. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And um and, and Sailor would when he started doing that, the uh hound hunters in this part of the world, uh, they didn't believe it. They 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 didn't believe that a dog could do that. And um, but he did. And and then Bo was doing it as well. Um but they'd strike a bear track that the bear hadn't even crossed the road, but the the track would be maybe Five hundred feet away from the road, you know, but they, and and they'd strike the thing, and then you let them go, and they end up catching the bear. And, but prior to those years, um, there was a guy up in Washington State by the name of D. Moss. I think his first name was D. He had plots, all plots, and uh, he worked for, uh, as I recall, Simpson Timber Company, which Simpson, at the in those years, they had professional bear hunters killing bears on Simpson ground that's right. what they were doing mm-hmm. and what the bears would do they would um, uh the Douglas fir trees they would they would um strip the bark off of them to go for the cambium layer of the of the right, tree they'd right. kill the trees so Simpson Simpson timber company their solution was kill all the bears and D D Moss was one of those guys and and I'd heard that he had dogs they would strike a bear off the box, you know. They put them on the box, you know, and yeah. drive the roads, and they they start them like that. And um, believe me, that's a whole lot simpler than this, taking. Yeah, this, so that was
2: new. That was new technology back in the day. Yes, it was. Yeah, now that's that's like that's the way most a lot of these guys hunt.
1: I even I've even been told that guys have got dogs that will strike lions that way. Yeah, they, they'll strike lion tracks off the truck, you know. Yeah, dogs if they, they learn how to do it, and. um. They're good, smart dogs, yeah. you know, and and they'll they'll pick up on that. They they start learning on their own how to do it, you know. But in the back in the back then, you know, in the earlier years, <clears throat> prior to the '60s, I'd say prior to the '70s, actually, um, nobody's had dogs that could do that stuff, um, hmm. except for just a few. Yeah, you know, like I said, I had a couple. Guys of dogs probably that,
2: weren't giving them much of a chance to do it either, were they? They what? They probably weren't given a much of a chance to no. do it. I mean, you know, it's like if you, if somebody knows that a dog has that ca- capability, he's probably giving it opportunity and paying attention to it when it's on the box. Yeah. And if you never did it before, you just think the dog's barking, maybe, or that's you, right. You know, you just you yeah. just didn't know. Yeah. But then, yeah, I
1: I caught a line one time, just not too far from the house where we're at right now. That um, I mentioned it in this book, and that I'd. Um, on santa creek fire road and i found the lion's track a couple of days before on the far south end of it, it was about i think that rose like 13 14 miles long and uh but it was an old track and i just worked it myself <coughs> with the do- try to dogs couldn't smell it and um i got about 10 miles of it and then i
2: so you followed the actual tracks of the lion with your eyes yeah, for 10 yeah, miles. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. I
1: pointed out to the dogs, if they could smell it, they'd bark. They'd try and find it, you know. But, you know, you're taking like some of these dogs. Uh, this is I'm being very honest and serious about this. You find a lion track in a dirt road, and the track is was made when the road was wet in the mud, and it's not wet now. It's dry, and it's hard. And you got dogs who can stick the nose down in that thing and smell that lion's track. They're smelling and responding to a track that is probably four days old, maybe Mm. a little older than that. Mm. Now, they can't trail it much at all. They smell it. They can't trail it. But at least they're identifying it, that I know that he was here. And Mm. you're looking there, and, and you're seeing where they're barking, and they're sticking their nose down in the dirt track that was mud but that is now hard solid wow that's incredible and, uh, so i would take and 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 try and do, work the dogs and and um see if we could get something out of it you know well anyways i got to the point that i figured it i got up here to this um telephone ridge and uh i thought you know i think i'm pretty caught up, caught up to that line pretty close which that's about eight miles i guess uh, from where I first found it. And uh, so I got this friend of mine, Joe Bryan, who, um, he's another fireman, <laughs> good friend, still friends. Mm. <laughs> and uh, uh, I mentioned Joe in the book. Joe hunted with me an awful I didn't have dogs. A terrific hand. A, a very good hand. Uh, anything. Horses, dogs, it didn't matter. He You just tell him to do it and he would do it. And he, would, he was very helpful. And uh, I called him up and I said, uh, I think I found this lion and he's on, on telephone ridge. And I says, if you want to go with me, uh, I'd like to have you go along. I'm going to come around from the north side and, and drive in to the south and and start looking. And that lion apparently met us in the road because we're driving down the road and the dog just exploded in the back of the truck. Mm. And uh, this was before I had dogs who were striking bears and stuff out of the back of the truck, but they just exploded, and uh, the road was hard. You couldn't see tracks of anything. And I said, "Well, whatever it was, it's fresh, and I know the these dogs in the back. I know what they what they look for when they what they chase. And if uh, whatever it is, it'll climb a tree. So let's find out." <laughs> and and we dumped the dogs out, and it it wasn't. Any time at all, and they had that line up a tree, you know.
2: Wow! So you had tra- you had trailed him with your eyes for eight miles. You had and yes, you, you knew which direction it was going. You came in from the other way and just caught him red hot.
1: I'd find his just track,
2: popped him right up.
1: Yes, I'd find his track where it, it stepped into the road, and then he then you'd lose the track. You had no idea where it was mm-hmm. at, and uh, all you knew is that he either went below the road or above the road. <coughs> So that from that point, I'd take a dog, one dog, just one dog. Gets going to be out there with me, and 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 at that time, it's either Sailor or bow, and both of them is extremely good at cold trailing, and um, just walk the road. Don't get him excited or anything. Uh, you don't want him casting out going a long ways from you, but start walking the road and just looking, and uh, you see the dog over there and he's smelling of a twig and his tail starts wagging and he's checking it out more and pretty soon he's run his nose out about a foot or a little more on a twig smelling to see what he's he's not too sure what he's smelling pretty soon they throw their head in the air and they let out a ball and you know you're you're going the right direction anyways you know yeah so from that point you just keep going and um like i say i was able to do that this line was, was i was lucky the lion was at 5,000-foot elevation, and that road is at 5,000 foot all the way. And it was um, just traveling, heading north at that same elevation, and that road just happened to be there. Mm. And uh, so anyways, we ended up catching the thing.
2: Yeah. <coughs> Ed, is there any part of the book that you'd like to tell people about? I mean, is there, is there, was your favorite part of the book for you? That uh, just a story, as we kind of start to wind down here a little bit.
1: Well, all the stories that I put in there happen to be kind of favorites, you know. And yeah. I guess uh, the thing for him to do is get a copy of the book and read the thing. Yeah, you know yeah. that'll tell. It. But you know, there there is something that I'd like to say that. Um, I haven't hunted hounds since. Well, I hunted with Jim Bridges one um, one time up in Susanville, and that was 1995. We caught a bear and let it go, of course. And, uh, but I didn't, I haven't had hounds since the late 1980s. And, uh, I kind of burned myself out between myself and my dealings with politics. And politics went all the way down into fishing game departments. Uh, Very political. And, um, in some cases you find yourself on the outside of the good old boys club and uh, mm-hmm. which is something that uh, unless you're in it you don't like it and I I want to no part of being in it um, I got involved with the Montana fishing game of uh, Tag and Mountain Lions and myself and a fishing game biologist up there named Jerry Brown we got together and uh, Jerry made the proposal to the Fish and Game Department to start um, tagging lions for research and I was all for that and I quit guiding to do that and uh, I learned a bad side of politics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some bad stuff goes on there. Um you know, when you've got a. Jerry Brown was a biologist. He's a good guy. He, 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 really a good guy. <clears throat> but when you've got a biologist that's in charge of the the um, special, what they call specialty animals of the state of Montana, which are grizzlies, uh, moose, <clears throat> bighorn sheep, and uh, eventually the mountain lion, I guess they've got in there. When uh, <clears throat> you're conducting a study for them, and you ask them, what are you doing with this information? And they tell you nothing. And then they ask you, why is it that you're not tagging more lions?" And you tell them, well, we're using tranquilizers, which in the beginning days I didn't. I caught a number of lines without tranquilizers, but..." That was clear back in the 60s in California. Mm-hmm. When they tell you, go ahead and dart the thing anyway. I said, well, the, the lions up in this country, they, most of them are treed pretty high. And uh, I don't want to dart a lion to watch him fall 60 feet to his death. Yeah. And they say, go ahead and do it anyways. And I asked the question, I said, what do would we, do, we tag that one? They say, well, what this is really all about is to uh, fool the general public into believing that them as a fish and game department, are doing a lot of things for the good of the animals, but down deep inside, all they're doing is trying to fool the general public. Mm. I heard that out of this state of California, and I heard that in the state of Montana, and I quit when the when I was told that I said I'm done yeah and uh, so I gave it up but Jerry Brown um, and I started that mountain lion tagging program in that state it was like 1975 I think is what it was to this day you can't even find that study Mm. I've, I've looked on the internet to find out if there's anything Any record of that particular study of lions, and I find nothing. Mm. But what I can find is where they took my information and published it along with a map showing every place that I was catching lions and releasing lions. And when they did that, the following year, there was standing room only in the area that I was hunting. Uh, they came as far away as Florida don't lions in an area that I was trying to do a study in so this is what I got to say about to the guys with the hound dogs be careful who you vote for yeah be careful what you say your videos are beautiful don't put them on the internet they're using them against you what happened in California also happened in Oregon then it happened in Washington State. Also, the panhandle of Idaho. You can't chase bears with, with hound dogs in the panhandle of Idaho either. The day's coming if you're not careful. They're going to take your hunting privileges away from you. Your hound dogs just will be like pets. Just like
2: they did here. and
1: Just like here.
2: Just like they did here.
1: All you'll have is pets. Mm. That's all you'll have. And uh,
2: So what do we need to do?
1: First off, be careful who you vote for. Yeah. Make sure you know who you're voting for. Yeah. <clears throat> like I say, the um, these videos. I can certainly understand. You know, back when I was doing this, we didn't have videos. If right. you had anything of moving, you had to have a movie camera. Yeah. And and, and you weren't taking that hunting.
2: In what? You weren't going to take that hunting.
1: No. You had to have a movie camera with you. And, and, and in order to do that, you also had to have the knowledge of how to d- use that thing. Otherwise, you got nothing out of them, you know. Today, we've got uh, handheld telephones that give you just beautiful videos. Yes, go ahead and get your videos, but keep it to yourself. Yeah. You put that thing on the internet. <clears throat> These protectionists are seeing that, and they're going to use that against you, just like they did here. Yeah. Um, I feel sorry for the guys that love this sport so much, and yet at the same time, they've got shackles on them. They got a short leash put on these guys for those hound dogs, and it's a wonderful sport. It truly is. I just, uh, like I say, I, I cherished my memories, but I got spoiled. I was spoiled. Mm-hmm. I truly was. I got to see the best of it. Mm-hmm. You know, when I started, uh, mountain lion was a bountied animal. Bobcats were non-protected. Some places, the, the bears were non-protected. You could just catch as many as you want, do whatever you wanted with them. And, uh, today you're lucky if you don't
2: <laughs> yeah
1: some places you got to get in the drawing just to be able to to go hunt them yeah you know
2: well we it really is a it's a wildlife management tragedy it's a cultural tragedy really that they've what they've done in california with hounds and i think it's important that we're here and that we're talking about this and that you've written a book about all these things that people can no longer do yeah, I think I think people are so well. Human nature is short sighted. Human nature thinks about today and tomorrow and not further ahead. Oftentimes, and and, and currently, I, I think there's somewhere around 17 states where you can run big game with hounds in the United States. I believe I believe there's okay. 17 All right. somewhere in that range. And whether these guys know it or not, their rights are currently being plotted against as we speak yes they are and and so even in places where it's not as threatened it is absolutely threatened by the current culture of this of the world of the and and specifically this country and you know what i say to people ed is that We have to get a whole lot smarter. We wrote an article in Barony Magazine the other day about not posting bay up videos of hounds and social media and all this. I'm in 100% agreement with you. The one thing that I know that I can do as a houndsman is clean up my own act, if I could say it that way. I mean, some of the bad apples inside the hound hunting community that have given people a bad name by being poachers or by being this or that. And there's going to be... There's going to be bad characters in any sport, any sport. There's bad characters in tennis, uh, yeah. but but I, I think about if we're being if we're being scrutinized, then Clay Newcomb better be on his best behavior all the time. I mean, we're being scrutinized on the way we care for our dogs. We're being scrutinized on you know everything. So it's like, man, I want to make sure that I'm doing everything right. And then part of what we're trying to do at Barony Magazine is that. W- If I believe that if if we don't create the narrative and tell our narrative, then the bad guys are going to tell the narrative for us. And that's part of the reason I wanted to come talk to you is to to, – I mean, hound hunting is an incredible sport. It's an incredible heritage that we have in this country. Uh, I mean, geez, our hunting culture was founded on hounds. I mean, George Washington had hounds. Teddy Roosevelt loved hound hunting. I mean, we have this rich, rich history. And if our generation, my generation doesn't do something different and get a whole lot smarter, a whole lot wiser, a whole lot more savvy when it comes to how we handle social media and Internet and all this different stuff, we will lose it. And that's what and and what we're saying is, hey, let's let's be smart. Let's let's not lose it. And uh, let's tell our narrative scientific based this is conservation based bears are thriving in north america mountain lions where there's good habitat are thriving hounds are a management tool that that we use to manage these animals and it's a beautiful and amazing thing really is
1: you know i want to i want to add something here that what we're talking about yeah we've had outlaw hunters is what we kind of tabbed them you know and i'd have to say that It's not all their fault. Um, In the 25-plus years that I did this, I I did this. This wasn't a hobby to me. I was in the woods. Um, um, A dozen years there, I I made my living from that. If I had two nickels to rub together, it was because somebody gave me that for taking them hunting.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And if they gave it to me for taking them hunting, it's because they got the animal that they were hunting for or they didn't give me the two nickels, you know. Mm -hmm. But over all those years, I hunted California, Nevada, Utah, Idaho, and Montana. And in all that time, which is like thousands and thousands of days, I think I only saw three three game wardens three different times. Is that right? Now, <clears throat> the woods were left wide open for the outlaw hunter to do anything he felt like, and he did. Mm-hmm. He did mm-hmm. do anything he felt like. He didn't have anything to worry about. Mm. Nobody's going to. Nobody's going to catch him.
2: Big predators were just not on the their now, radar. Outside, do you think? Do you think it's different now, Ed? I mean, I I would think that it would be different.
1: I have no idea what they're doing.
2: They kind of turned a blind eye to it, is what you're saying? They just didn't care. They didn't care. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But eventually, there's some people came along that did care, and they had money, and they had a lot of spare time, too, and they really don't like doing what we were doing. They didn't like that idea. You know, the same people, though, if turned around—
2: And it was the anti-hunting community.
1: Yes, Right. But yet these people also have the ability, through, through money, to take and buy legislators, to introduce bills, to stop a guy with his hound dogs. Well,
2: it's been a pleasure to talk with you, and, and people, can, people can find this. Why don't you tell us where people can find your book?
1: Okay, <clears throat> um, it, it's, I have a website, and it's by the title of the book. You go to uh you can purchase the book there uh, uh, or you can go to Amazon and you can purchase it out on Amazon as well it makes no difference where you purchase it Amazon will cost you more money and I mail every one of them so it doesn't okay. matter okay. they all come out of this house right here yeah and uh, so that's a place that you can go and it'll it'll enlighten some of you to um, other things we've not talked about And um, I'd sure like to see um, a lot of these protectionists stopped. I really do. I I have no interest in going hunting myself, but I never forgot how good it is to do it. Yeah.
2: So they can go to trainbyhounddog.com, and this is a 200-and-something-page book. How many It's about 280. 280 pages. Just
1: 70-some photos.
2: Beautiful photos. And I just want to say that uh I was really impressed with this book, obviously I wouldn't be here if i if I was not, but thoroughly enjoyed the the writing style the the storytelling aspect of it. I felt like it had just the right amount of 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 human story, but also hound dog story and hunting story and excitement, but also kind of this you really got a sense of of you as a young man just kind of given. All that you had to this dream that you had to to live the kind of lifestyle that you wanted to live with your hounds, and uh, and I admired your diligence and just your starting from zero in becoming really a master houndsman over those years, and uh, and boy, there's so much I wanted to talk about. You know, I I wanted to talk about some of the the physical endurance. Things that you did chasing these dogs and staying out way after dark and uh you know coming in after fifteen twenty miles a day on foot and coming in hours after dark and cold I mean just some of the stuff that you did physically, I felt like was just incredible, and not a lot of people are are doing that kind of stuff these days, but no I just well and like I said at the beginning the your your voice inside the book is strong. And uh, and it's clear to to for me to to perceive that you're a man of integrity and and uh, just I, I I really thoroughly enjoyed the book so I I'd, I'd really encourage everybody to get it support Ed and in, in in this book and you'll enjoy it for sure it's a it's a great book and uh, thank you so much for having us up today
1: oh hey I'm glad that you're here yeah you got a wonderful family I'll tell you that well thank you <laughs> this is really good thank you I, I I welcome the opportunity to do this and. I will tell you this: that um, on that book, I did the best I could to make it to where it didn't sound like a "how great I am" type of a book, no bragging or anything like that. I brought a lot of other individuals into to the book, uh, people from past that uh, I never knew, but I knew about them, and I I knew the true side to the to them. I know that not everything that gets written down is honest. Uh, I can tell you this, from my point, every single word that's in there is true. Um, no exaggerations, and um, I think you'll find it interesting. Um, there's some other hound men that um, you never knew, never heard about, that um, the way that they did things, the dogs they had. Um, I never I never was colorblind, I'll tell you that, I... I had a a saying that I would tell people when they'd ask me about different breeds of dogs, and I'd I'd almost always tell them that um, I never saw a good dog that was the wrong color, <laughs> and uh, and I really meant that. I and um, I mentioned other brought other guys into the book, uh, Charlie Tant. He lived like Ben Lilly, and um, got some photos of Charlie. Uh, I mentioned. Um, Howard Bilton, he was a California state lion hunter. Uh, I never could find anything that was ever written about Howard Bilton Is a lion hunter, but Howard Bilton had to be good. Uh, I could go by his record and I could tell that he caught too many lions to be anything less than good. Yeah. And, uh, uh but, anyways, I I, I entered out a lot of that. Is he the there. guy
2: that killed 600 something lions yeah, on record for the state yeah. of California?
1: Well, uh, no, Jay Bruce, um, he had recorded kills of 600 and 660 something. Those are not bragging stories, those are stories that were documented. It took a set of ears off of a lion to, before it went down on a piece of paper. But Jay Bruce was one of the, he was the very first state lion hunter, but um, Charlie lived like a bag person. I mean, he didn't have a house. He just lived out there wherever he, wherever he stopped, that's where he lived. But he still caught lots of lions, and he did it by walking to do it. No, no GPS, no four-wheel drives, no horses, none of that. He just walked. Mm. And wow. but so I put that in the book, and um, because I think it, it needed to be in there. Yeah. Hopefully, um, if you ever get the book, you'll read it. And if you do, I'd like to hear it from you and see what you think about it.
2: Yeah, yeah. So if you get a book, send uh, send Ed an email and give him a review on Amazon. But uh, well, again, my pleasure to be here, Ed. Thank you so much for having us. And uh, we have we have a, a saying at the end of every podcast that we say. All right, or I, I'll say it, but uh, I'm gonna slightly amend it for this one because we're talking about lions. But keep the wild places wild because that's where the lions live.
1: You bet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All
0: right. right. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com they've got ranches forests mountains streams you name it search by acreage you can search by location you can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of land.com it is where the adventure begins hey we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries now if you're like me enjoying the great outdoors you need gear that is as reliable as it gets that's why i power my adventures with interstate batteries